Um, this morning, we don't get to hear from Pastor Ed, which is disappointing to me. I always love hearing his messages, but he needs a break now and then, and I'm happy to provide a way for him to have that break. You get me today. So we're looking at uh, Exodus chapter 20, beginning in chapter 27, and uh, before we get into the scripture, I'd like you to think about this. Everybody is basically either a wanderer or a nester at heart. Some people have that wanderlust. They love to see what's, our next, what's around the next corner. They have itchy feet. They lo- love to go looking. They love to explore. Other people are basically, they love to be at home. There's nothing like settling in at home, being at, at, at your place, in your own bed. Basically, nesters. Now, some people are a combination of both things, but I would say everybody is predisposed to be either a wanderer or a nester. Which are you? Would you compare notes with uh, somebody nearby and uh, talk about that for a little bit? Are you basically a wanderer or a nester at heart? Let me kind of pull the crowd then, if I may. If you would say that basically you're a wanderer, would you raise your hand? Okay, a bunch of you are wanderer types. And if you're basically a nester, would you raise your hand? Uh, Yeah, a bunch of nesters here too. Well, you know, when it comes right down to it, both wanderers and nesters probably have a similar motivation. That is, what is it that that prompts you to to always be looking, wandering to the next thing, I suspect that behind that impulse is a desire to find home. And for a nester, what is it but that longing for home, to settle in at home, that motivates you? I think there is within every one of us a longing for home. Like Dorothy at the end of The Wizard of Oz, clicking her red ruby slippers together and saying, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. We have that sense in us too, don't we? Every one of us have a longing for home. Uh, Where does that come from? I think it's part of the way we were created. God really made us for Eden that garden home that was the perfect place for man and woman to dwell in fellowship with their creator. But ever since sin led to the fall and mankind was banished from Eden, we've all experienced some sense of displacement. In a real sense, we spend our lives longing for home. And the passage from the book of Exodus that we'll be looking at today provides some beginning to God's answer to that human longing for home. 
in Exodus 25 to 27. It's the first installment of what the Bible describes as the tabernacle, that is God's tent home intended where he intended to live with his people at the very center of their encampment. And he provided some very specific instructions about how that tent home was to be constructed and arranged. Exodus 27, 25 through 27 details God's instruction about how to build the tabernacle. And then a few chapters later, Exodus revisits the very same themes while detailing the construction of the tabernacle so that nearly a fourth of the books of, book of Exodus is taken up with rather detailed and, frankly, a little boring instructions about the tabernacle. Why so much ink devoted to the details about the tabernacle? That's a question that deserves some attention, and I want to come back to it a little bit later. But right now, let's look to Exodus chapter 25 and uh, read the first few verses where the instructions about the tabernacle are introduced. Exodus 25, 1 through 9. Uh, I'm reading from the New Living Translation today, and the, it's on the screen if you want to follow that. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Accept the contributions from all whose hearts are moved to offer them. Here is a list of sacred offerings you may accept from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Fine linen and goat hair for cloth. Tanned ram skins and fine goat skin leather. Acacia wood. Olive oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and other gemstones to be set in the ephod and the priest's chest piece. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. I want to make three observations about this opening instruction about the tabernacle. First, the gifts given to build the tabernacle, the gift giving is supposed to be voluntary. Uh, it's not a tax. <laughs> Rather, the people are to give as they feel moved, the scriptures say. God intended, uh, he's, he's really not interested in forced worship. Rather, he looks for and longs for the crowning achievement of his creation to choose to worship him. That's the purpose for which he created us, after all. And he looks for voluntary worship. A second thing that I'd like to point out about these gifts is that the gifts are about very specific things. Things they might have plundered from the, uh, their former Egyptian captors. Uh, precious metals, fine expensive threads, linens and leathers and olive oil and precious stones. The people are supposed to follow very specific instructions about the use of these particular gifts in specific ways to make the tabernacle. 
The symbolism apparently matters because specific symbols point to specific holy things. And a third observation is that the instructions specify beautiful, highly prized, and highly valued things to accompany this place to meet with God. And I think we understand from this that in God's economy, beauty is important and significant in our worship. Then the specific instructions after this introduction then unfold. And let me give you kind of an overview first. Exodus 25 uh, deals with three big significant pieces of furniture at the heart of the tabernacle. It's kind of interesting that the writer goes first to the inside, the very center of the tabernacle, and talks about three pieces of furniture. That's chapter 25. Chapter 26, then, goes to the whole enclosure and kind of gives instructions about how the, the curtains are arranged for this tabernacle. And then chapter 27 goes again to one more significant piece of furniture uh, at the end, near the begin, beginning of the tabernacle and gives more instruction about the, the arrangement of the tent curtains. So that's, that's where the, the writer is going with this overview at the beginnings of the instructions to the tabernacle. Next week, we'll get to chapter 28 and 29, which spoke, focuses on the priests that will serve inside the tabernacle. Pastor Ed will, will uh, cover that part. But today, let's take a look at 25, 26, and 27 and see if we can pick out some key things from these instructions about the tabernacle. Uh, first is Exodus 25, beginning in verse 17. The writer starts with probably the most important installation in the whole tabernacle. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why Ark? Strange word. What do you think of when you think of Ark? A boat. Noah. Noah and the Ark. Well, I, and I think the idea there is the Ark, for Noah's Ark, was to keep the people safe from the flood. This Ark also is something to hold safe something really valuable and sacred. Well, let's read about it. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 17. Just a minute. Then make the ark's cover. He's described the, the box first. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm jumping into the middle of it. It's a box. Basically, that's what it is. It's a box. But it's a gold-covered box that's going to hold those tablets of stone that God with his finger wrote on the Ten Commandments. So it's a box to hold something really precious. And then the, the part I want to read is the cover for the box. And this is verse 17. Then make the ark's cover, and he calls it, in this translation, the place of atonement. If you have a King James Version, it calls it a mercy seat. And we think of a seat as being a place to sit. That's not what he means. It's just a mercy place. It's an atonement cover or a mercy cover. It has this pretty particular name. Uh, make it from pure gold. 
It must be 45 inches long and 25 inches wide. Then make two cherubim, that's interesting, of hammered gold and place them on the two ends of the atonement cover. Mold the cherubim on each end of the, the atonement cover, making it all of one piece of gold. The cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover. Writers think that that means they can't look up to where God was. Their faces are rather turned down away from the glory of God. With their wings spread above it, they will protect it. So this angelic cherubim cover protects the contents of the box. Place inside the ark the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, which I will give to you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark. And here's the significant part. I will meet with you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the Ark of the Covenant. From there, I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. Do you see what he's doing? God is saying that this is the place from which I will speak and meet with you. God is saying his manifest presence is going to live right there above the cherubim that guard the Ark of the Covenant. That's where his presence will reside. And I think that's why he starts with this piece of furniture. He's talking about the most important piece of furniture first. But then he goes on to describe two more pieces of furniture the next one is the table. And you can look at that in Exodus 25, verse 23. Let's read it. Then make a table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and run a gold molding around the edge. Decorate it with a three-inch border all around and, and run a gold molding around the border. Make four gold rings for the table and attach them to the four corners next to the four legs. Attach the rings near the border to hold the poles that are used to carry the table. Make these poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Make special containers of pure gold for the table, bowls, ladles, pitchers, jars, to be used in pouring out liquid offerings. Place the bread of the presence on the table to remain before me at all times. So he gives pretty particular specific instructions about this table that has sim lots of symbolic meaning. And he, he, uh, with, with this piece of furniture, as with all of them, he includes the instructions on how this table will be portable. That is, it has rings on the, on the corners with poles to carry it by, because this is going to be a table that they're going to carry around the wilderness until they get to the promised land. Likewise, the ark has similar descriptions. It's carried with poles in rings that they'll use to carry it around to its various locations. And the next one, too, is the lampstand. Uh, it's the third piece of furniture described in this chapter. It is intended to give light to the interior of the tabernacle. It has almond buds and branches. The lampstand is basically a 
beautiful work of art, golden, of one piece, that serves a valuable function, giving light to see by inside this tent. Now, from our vantage point, on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, we can see rich symbolism in these three leading furniture pieces because we have Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and in that sacrifice we receive mercy to cover or atone for our sins. Jesus is also the bread of life who invites us to sit at his table for fellowship and sustenance. And Jesus is the light of the world, the one who dispels the darkness of our lights with his glorious cleansing light. So, having described these three significant pieces of furniture at the heart of the tabernacle, the scripture turns next to instructions about the layout of the tabernacle. Chapter 26 details the arrangement of the tabernacle. There's a picture on the screen. You may have seen something like this before. Curtains surrounding the outer courtyard and a tent enclosing the holy place uh, with a curtain protecting the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was to be placed. Let's read a little bit about it in Exodus 26, beginning in verse 31. For the inside of the tabernacle, make a special curtain of finely woven linen. Decorate it with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. There's those colors again. And with skillfully embroidered cherubim. Cherubim again. Hang this curtain on gold hooks attached to four posts of acacia wood. Overlay the posts with gold and set them in four silver bases. Hang the inner curtains from clasps and put the Ark of the Covenant in the room behind it. This curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Then put the ark's cover, the place of atonement, on top of the ark of the covenant inside the most holy place. Place the table outside the inner curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and place the lampstand across the room on the south side. Make another curtain for the entrance to the sacred tent and so on. Uh, let me show you a picture on the screen of the, uh, the, the tent that they're constructing with its coverings. And uh, I'll come back to that in a minute. I wanted to tell you this, this first, though. Uh, I learned from some of my reading that the tabernacle, in a sense, represents the mountain where God met with the people of Israel. On Mount Sinai, there were three regions and in the tabernacle, we should probably put up that first picture. Could you put up the first picture again? There we are. There, that one. The three, there are three regions in the tabernacle that correspond to Mount Sinai. The place at the bottom of the mountain is where the people waited for Moses to go up and receive the Ten Commandments. Remember that? The people trembled in fear at the base of the mountain because of the awesomeness of a holy God. And the courtyard area is the people's place in the tabernacle. 
But then some of the leaders went a little ways up the mountain to meet with God. Likewise, inside the tent in the holy place is where the priests go as representatives of the people. Only Moses went up to the top of the mountain to the very presence of God. And the most holy place in the tabernacle is where God's presence resides. Just the priest goes in there in the way the tabernacle was arranged. And it, there'll be more about the priests next week, but that, that's, that's a little bit of an overview. Here's the thing. While the tabernacle shows how wonderful it is to live at home with God, it also bars the way to God. The layout of the tabernacle underlines the problem. Hold that thought. We'll return to it before we finish today. Now back to the coverings. The covers over the tabernacle, it's kind of interesting, the inner layer is blue, it represents the heavens. The second layer is made of goat skins, which represent the covering that God made for Adam and Eve when they were banished from the garden, the covering for their shame. The third layer is ram skins dyed red to represent the sacrifices and blood required to provide a covering for sin. And then the final layer seems to be designed to protect everything from the elements. So that's the tent covering that goes over the the tent inside the, the tabernacle. We've seen the three pieces of furniture in chapter 24. We've gotten some of the description of the tabernacle tent and curtains in chapter 20, I'm sorry, 25, 26. Chapter 27 is where we're going to finish today. This is the explanation of how all the gifts specified at the beginning of the tabernacle instructions were to be used. There's more detail here about the size and arrangement and layout of the tabernacle complex, along with one more piece of furniture. Let's look at that. Exodus 27.1 introduces the altar of burnt offering. This is supposed to be a reusable, portable piece of furniture. The first piece you would encounter upon coming into the tabernacle, and it represents sacrifice as the means by which we may approach God. Our sins separate us from a holy God. But sacrifice covers our sins. The Jewish system of offering animal sacrifices to atone for their sins points to God's later provision of the final perfect sacrifice of himself on the cross in the person of Jesus the Son of God, who died in our place, taking our punishment so that we may come to God. But back to the tabernacle narrative. Uh, oh, uh, 27.1, I didn't read it. I should do that. Using acacia wood, construct a square altar seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, and four and a half feet high. And then there's more description about that altar. Uh, and then the courtyard is next, 27 verse 9. 
Then make the courtyard for the tabernacle enclosed with curtains made of finely woven linen. On the south side, make the curtains 150 feet long. They will be held up by posts and so on. It gives description. Um, remember how I said earlier that the tabernacle signifies a longing for mankind to return to our original home in Eden? Let's look at Genesis 3, 23 and 24. These are the Genesis verses that record Adam and Eve's banishment from the Garden of Eden and points out a significant thing about the tabernacle. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. In these specific outlines of how the tabernacle was to be arranged, he specifies the size and the orientation of the tabernacle. It always faces the east. Now that, that's east in this room. And the tabernacle itself is 75 feet wide and 150 feet deep. Now it's kind of interesting. This might give you an idea, a better feel for how it really is laid out. This room is 75 feet from the back wall to the front wall. Kind of interesting. It's the very width of the tabernacle enclosure. So you can kind of get an idea of what the space, size of the space felt like. Uh, but it's also 150 feet long. Uh, and this room is one third of that. So if you put three sanctuaries side by side, that gives you an idea of the size of the tabernacle. And remember that it orients to the east. This is east, where the sun comes up. East of Eden, we are ever since Adam and Eve consigned to this place of wandering, east of Eden, longing to get back to our original garden home. And the tabernacle was a reminder of that reality so that the sun comes up at our backs as we approach God. His mercy is new every morning, but it gets dark again too. So we come into the tabernacle and the first piece of furniture that we encounter in this, enclosure, this tent enclosure is the altar of sacrifice. Seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet square, three and a half feet high. Because sacrifice, atoning for our sins, is the way, the necessary first step in order to come to God. And after we pass the altar... The next piece of furniture that is covered a little more in later chapters is a washing basin, the la laver, uh, to, to, for cleansing. And all of us are consigned to be out here in the tabernacle system. Only the priests get to go on into the, the holy place. Now, uh, physically, about where the coffee table, coffee uh, bar is out in the lobby, that's about where the holy place would begin, so that the holy place would be in Pastor Ed's office. 
And, and it, was in, it would be in that room where you would encounter, well, we wouldn't, only the priests could go in there, but you would encounter the table of the bread of presence on the right. A reminder, a looking, looking ahead to the bread of Christ. The, Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. And on the left would be that golden lampstand, that beautiful work of art that has perpetual light uh, illuminating the inside of the, the tabernacle, reminding us of the light of Jesus. And then, curtained by that uh, beautiful tapestry with cherubim woven into it, that would block the way to the inner room, which would be about where, in our building, about where the holy grounds used to be. That's about where it would be located in, in this space. Um, and there would be the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim cover and the presence of God. Does that give you a little bit of an idea of how the space might have been laid out in the original tabernacle? I told you that before we finish today, I wanted to return to the big question that I raised at the beginning. Why does Scripture, and particularly the books of Moses, including the book of Exodus, why does it devote so much attention to the tabernacle? Nearly a quarter of the book of Exodus is about this particular tent home where God intends to dwell or tabernacle at the center of the camp of his holy people. I want to suggest to you that God's plan for the tabernacle gets all the ink because it really is important. It's a picture of God's answer to our human longing for home. Wanderers go searching for it. Nettlers, nesters settle in hoping for it. The tabernacle is first an echo of Eden and reflects our longing for the home we lost. There's a song by Phil Wickham that I really like. It's titled Eden, and the chorus goes like this. I want to see you face to face, where being in your arms is the permanent state. I want, to, want it like it was back then. I want to be in Eden. Second, the tabernacle is a symbol of salvation. It's a picture in layout and furniture of the way to our real home, which is in intimate fellowship with our Creator. We, we think it's a place. We wander, we nest, thinking a place is going to do it. Really, it's not a place at all. It's a presence. It's in the presence of God that we find true home. And this tabernacle is a picture of that reality. The curtain that once separated us from the manifest presence of God, that cherubim curtain that blocks the way to the manifest presence of God. You remember in the book of Matthew, in the, in the Gospels, 
there was a moment when Jesus died on the cross. At the point of his death, the scriptures tell us that the curtain in the temple, which represents that same curtain as this tabernacle curtain, ripped from top to bottom, opening the way for all of us to come into the very manifest presence of God. No longer blocked, barriered, we now have free entrance, thanks to Jesus. Third, I think this tabernacle is a hint of heaven, where the original created order will be fully restored and we will truly be home. That longing for home is, in a sense, also a longing for heaven, isn't it? Think of the images that the tabernacle evokes. Beauty, light, feasting and fellowship around the table of God. These are the kinds of things that will be fully realized only in heaven. Hebrews 10 Verses 19 through 22 says this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Wonderful thing God has done to take us to our true home in his presence. And so, to all us wanderers and nesters, there is a home that you can begin to experience now and that will be fully realized one day. Though as earthbound travelers, it's hard for us to grasp, the reality is that our home, the home we instinctively long for, is not in any particular place. It's found only in the presence of our Creator. And living in that very presence is possible, thanks to Jesus. Can you say amen to that? St. Augustine captured it, captures it in this quote. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for making a way where we can come right into your very presence. We understand that this longing for home that all of us experience to some degree or another is really at its heart, in its essence, a longing for you. 
And we're so grateful that you've made a way through Jesus that we can come right into your very presence. Jesus, we, we're so grateful that you took on yourself the punishment for our sins, that we, the punishment that we deserve, you have taken so that we can be clean, no longer burdened, weighed down with guilt and shame, but set free to come right into the presence of God. Thank you for what you've done and for this privilege of walking with you again as you originally intended in that beautiful garden home that you made for your creation. And we do look forward to the full realization of our heavenly home one day. Thank you for what you've done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last instruction that the scripture gives at the end of chapter 27 is that the people are supposed to bring lots of olive oil because it's needed in order to keep that lampstand perpetually burning all the time. That light is supposed to keep on shining all the time. It kind of reminds me of Tom Baudet. Because just as God's light is always shining, we too are supposed to be reflectors of the light of God. Jesus said, let your light so shine before people that they'll see the Father. So God says, and we say, I'll leave the light on for you. Go and shine his light.